a Lifetime original podcast. You know who um, Fabulous teaches me how to spell correctly Fabulous? Because I know the way that he spells it is the incorrect way. So in my head, mm. if someone says Fabulous, I'm like, F-A-B-O. No, F-A-B-U. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks the reason I know the opposite way of That's like when, when that song taught me how to spell bananas. Scandal taught me the government. <laughs> this is very embarrassing because I think I learned more about government from Scandal. No, no, no. I remember more about government from Scandal than my AP government class in high school. Mm-hmm. Don't tell my teacher, but Scandal taught a lot, okay? Yeah, and I know nothing except for fashion because of Scandal. Scandal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to The Table is Ours, the podcast where we sit down with strong and impactful Black celebrities to talk about all things Black. That's Black culture, the Black experience, and literally living and walking in Black history. I am here with my extremely fierce and incredibly accomplished co-host, Ms. Amira Lawali. Hey, girl. Hello. That was such an intro. Oh, my gosh. A little thrown off. Wow. I feel like Stacey's extraordinary words have now (laughs) transferred over to Kirby's extraordinary words. (laughs) If Amira held a seat in government, she would be none of the traditional ones. She would literally be Olivia Pope, the fixer. Oh, because who doesn't want to be the boss who is Olivia Pope? As well as Carrie Washington, who plays the boss of Olivia Pope. But someone who was able to see ahead, make a way out of no way, fix everyone else's drama, fix everyone else's mess, and still look flawless in the pursuit of doing all of the above. I accept that. I love Olivia. Okay, y'all know who this is. The greatest of all time. Hey. The best co-host anyone could have. It is Kirby Dixon, y'all. Hello. <laughs> and if Kirby held a seat in government, she would be. Hmm. Okay, this is hard because in reality, there's so many different seats that I could see you holding, right? Really? I thought you choose the wrong one time. Yeah, let me tell you. Let me tell you why. Okay. You would be amazing at press secretary. Like, owning, talking people off, like that. But that's also your core. You're, mm-hmm. That's obviously, that's easy. Mm-hmm. You would be so good at president, because I think you're very compassionate for different groups. Like, you're very empathetic. Okay. I think you'd be great at vice president, because I feel like they do the, like, like, they do the real work, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, you know, you know. <laughs> and then I also think you would run the tightest ship for chief of staff. Girl. So, you would be, like, taking names, moving on. <laughs> you'd be so good at chief of staff. So, this is why it's hard. You should go to politics, girl. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely not. If there's any seat that I would ever want to have, it would literally be First Lady, a.k.a. Michelle Obama. She literally got to do the initiatives that she wanted to go, to do. Mm-hmm. And she actually did them, right? Public figure. She dressed well, got to go to all of the events, traveled everywhere. Yep. And literally got to pour her heart and soul into a cause that she really cared about. Although I feel like being First Lady to somebody who is President of the United States is the most stressful, stressful. job in the entire world. So I take that back. No politics for your girl. On you, your kids, your relationship. No politics for your girl. I maneuver that enough in corporate America. No thanks. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back down to earth for a second. So we are gonna work on this 2022 manifestation and goal of sitting in big moments, big wins, moments that are for us, 
And we made this happen ourselves. We sat down with Stacey Abrams. I know. And she was a joy. I do. We just got to sit in this for one second. I think you're 100% right. She was so wise and down to earth and brilliant. I mean, it, we are in the season of giving. We are in the season of Christmas. Uh-huh. And I think, Amira, we probably got one of the most iconic, epic, best, honorable Christmas gifts from a career perspective that we could have ever received heading into this holiday season. That was the best gift. That was, oh, I'm still so hyped. I can't even focus. Oh, it feels so real. You know what it is? You know what it is? I wouldn't let myself celebrate it until it happened because, of course, she's so busy. Like, I didn't want to, like, cry if it was the last moment. So I didn't let myself celebrate at all. So now Mm -hmm. it feels like I'm getting, like, instant, like, hit in the chest. Like, damn, did that just happen? I know. I guess, all right, I'm going to throw a question your way. Not what joy looks like for you this week, because you have a lot of joyful things happening to you this week. But I guess in a quick blurb, what does Stacey Abrams' impact mean for you? Oh, my gosh, so much. I'm getting chills just thinking about (laughs) it. I think for me personally, she means change can happen, right? It has the ability to happen, I'm not going to lie, from a very, like, red state that everyone's like, it's never going to change. And to see Mm -hmm. her leave change is inspiring, has opened my own eyes personally. Mm -hmm. Plus, the idea of perseverance, like, we talked a lot um, in this episode about fear Mm -hmm. and embarrassment and humiliation. And, girl, I've been there. But I, like, if I am humiliated to the point, I can feel that weight for, like, years in it, and I don't run back. And to just see someone so strong and powerful and wise, like, run back to it and channel it a different way is inspiring. And it's kind of a challenge to me. What does her impact mean to you? Oh, my God. It's so much. Um, I think I'm having a moment right now where, you know, a lot of people say you don't want to meet your icons because they'll never deliver oh my to God, your standards. Yeah. She delivered more. more than I think we could have expected and even I anticipated. Um yeah. Seeing someone that looks like you and I, that came into this room with her natural hair, that was Mm -hmm. so well put together, that is so articulate, that cares so much. Like, I'm just thinking of this moment, but I think everything that she's done for the Black community, but like community building in general, just pours into me what it means to really care about the job that you decide to take when you become an adult. Exactly. And I can't imagine having a better role model to see someone succeed in our lifetime than Stacey Abrams. And, and, and I think whenever I see someone able to juggle numerous passions so eloquently at once, when I, when I say it was a negative to be a jack of all trades, but a master of none, I mean that. And I lived with that for so long. Like even as I navigate our career pathing now, when someone tells me I can't do multiple things, I just don't understand it. (laughs) Why? You can be a master of all things. You really can if you work hard enough to do it. And to have someone at that high of a level tell us that it is true. And she literally walks the walk, talks the talk. And in my eyes, she already won. I know. She's been one. But like she said, there are different definitions of winning and she has won. There has never, ever, 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 ever in the history of the United States been a Black female governor. Ever. Yep. It is about to be 2022. Yep. Oh, what my gosh. What in the audacity? Oh. What <laughs> in the audacity? Like, come on, U.S. Get it together. I know. 
I get know. it together. And I think there's like, I think the most people of color, female, female, black female, like politicians right. running this year. Yeah, um, I saw and that. I'm, yeah, I'm excited to hopefully see them live out their dreams. I think we'll be a better country for it. Like, I don't know. There's just something about black women <laughs> and women of color in general that just know how to get it done. So, Miss Stacey Abrams is so many incredible things, but she is a political leader, a voting rights activist, and a New York Times best-selling author. In 2018, Abrams became the Democratic nominee for the governor of Georgia, winning at the time more votes, okay, than any other Democrat in the state's history. Abrams was the first Black woman to become the gubernatorial nominee for a major party in the United States. Ms. Stacey Abrams helped register at least 800,000 new voters, and she just announced her second run for governor of the state of Georgia, and we are so proud of her. Yes, we spoke to Stacey about perseverance as a Black woman in America and the true importance of pushing through fear while picking yourself up after failure. She's an inspiration for us all and talks about her journey and the responsibility she feels to serve her community. She also dives into the themes of her new upcoming children's book out December 28th, Stacey's Extraordinary Words, where her real childhood lessons are illustrated for Black youth across the country. Stacey Abrams, let's get into it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Hi. It is such an honor to meet you. We are extremely excited. And I think that'll calm our nerves if we're just very honest about how excited we are to speak with you today. Yes. I appreciate it. Honor is a big word. Yeah. Can I just, before we get started, may I ask, how would you like to be referred to as Miss Abrams, Stacey, greatest of all time? How would you like us to (laughs) refer to you? I I think for all all intents and purposes, Stacey covers the gamut of any any thoughts you may have, expressed or unexpressed. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) And we like to start every episode the same where we ask our guests this question. So it's been so chaotic lately with everything. What does joy look like for you? A Saturday with nothing on my calendar. That's the best. <laughs> that is the best. That's my favorite thing to do. Nothing. I can totally agree with that. Exactly. Yeah. Watching your favorite shows, doing absolutely exactly. nothing. Exactly. Just open my calendar and it is blank. There's not even, you know, there's nothing on there. Oh, I feel like you're not going to get that for a while, though. <laughs> you asked me what it looked like, not if I've seen it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we totally agree. A Saturday with nothing to do. I can definitely relate to that. Um, and we're going to get into your incredible new children's book. We're so excited to have you here. We've read it. 
Loved it. But before we get into that, I want to kind of get a little bit into your background that from a very early age and as a child, you were exposed to what Black excellence looks like in its purest form, right? From your uh, parents' involvement in the civil rights movement to their stress and importance on education and even bringing you and your siblings to the polls as a form of family outings, right? Um, So I want to ask you, while your family and life experience were steering in these directions, How did you know the path into politics was the way that you wanted to go? I didn't think about politics as the path. I knew that government had responsibilities that weren't being met where I was growing up in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And as I grew up and moved to Georgia and then as a college student, each iteration of the challenges I saw When I tried to figure out how do you solve these problems, it always came back to we need people in government who are doing their part, that the private sector has its role, the public sector has a role, and the nonprofit sector has a role. I was in the private sector as a lawyer. I was in the nonprofit sector doing volunteer work, but it was the public sector that had the largest obligation and so often the hugest gaps. So I I wanted to fit there. I actually thought I'd just be a really good bureaucrat, but politicians wouldn't do what I told them. So I, <laughs> I, I ran for office. But I will say this all began. I, I I tease my parents. We would you know we would go and volunteer, and this means nothing to you, Kirby and Amira, because you're way too young. But <laughs> there used to be a time when you could only watch cartoons on Saturdays from set periods of time, from seven a.m. to noon. After mm-hmm. that, you were just out of luck. There were no reruns and we couldn't afford something as fancy as a VCR. And so I was often forced (laughs) to miss the super friends because we were out volunteering. And while I appreciated the service and and, and I had no sense of irony saying this, like I am missing the super friends because we're out helping people. Shouldn't someone else be doing this? Like how are these two black people and their six black kids going to fix Mississippi And my mom said, you know, that's what government's supposed to do. I'm like, well, government needs to get on it because I am missing the super friends yet again. (laughs) Hello. That became, you know, not my nemesis, but certainly a driver for me, making sure that other children did not risk missing the super friends. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's so funny. (laughs) Going into your teen years and knowing that you're missing super friends. We don't like this. Mm -hmm. What did rebellion look like for Stacey Abrams as a teenager? (laughs) If there was any. If there was anything. <laughs> I, I, I was an internal rebel. Not, I, I didn't externalize it very much at all. I'm very afraid of my parents. Oh my gosh, um, me they, too. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were no joke. So no, there was no, I, I think once I ran up a phone bill, this is back when you could call and get jokes and I did not quite understand how much, how expensive it was. That was less rebellion and more just bad math. But no, I was I was not a rebellious child. Oh, Same I thing. I always say that I didn't get teenage angst because I was too scared of my mom. Like I did not have time for it. I was I wasn't gonna go there. No, I did do angst. I actually my very first attempt at a novel was called My Diary of Angst. And it was my musings on just how misunderstood and how dismal and cynical the world was and how we were it was all for naught. So I, I did have that. I just didn't externalize it because no one else cared. Right. You expressed it in your writing. Yeah, exactly. I totally can relate to that, too, because I'm very much an internal person. I'm an introvert. I say I'm an extrovert, introvert. Had too much respect for the parents to go against them. Oh, but yeah. I would be saying these little monologues <laughs> in, in my, my head. head. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many people were shocked to learn that you write novels. Fictional writing and politics don't necessarily seem like traditional compliments. How do you pour into both of your passions simultaneously? 
I've been writing as long as I can remember. For me, writing is a part of who I am. It's my way of thinking through and situating myself, but also understanding what's happening around me. But I've also never been limited by genre. So my very first publication was actually an essay I wrote on Mesopotamian astronomy. If anyone's really, really bored. (laughs) It's in the Journal of the Astronomical Society of the Atlantic, uh, Georgia State University. I did it in part because I fell asleep in class in high school. Anyway, very different story. But all of which is to say, writing for me has always been both uh, a medium for communication, but also a catharsis. And I started writing before I ran for office. I wrote my first novel in law school. I've never seen the division. They are separate lanes, Mm -hmm. but they're all on the same path. And so writing is part of who, who I am and what I do. I really love that because growing up, I would always hear this phrase, it's not good to be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And I hated that because I Mm -hmm. felt like where these individuals that have so many different interests and likes, there's literally no way that you're telling me I can't pour into all the passions that I have. That just (laughs) seems ridiculous to me. So for you to kind of bring one into the other and show how one complements the other, I really love that about you because that's how I've felt my entire life. I never wanted to limit myself for what I can do. (laughs) Well, Kirby, I will say this. My mom actually said that to me. I was 15. I was doing a bunch of things. And well, she said, she said, well, you know, you don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. What I heard is master all trades. It's not what she intended. (laughs) That's what she got. That's what she got. (laughs) But I was like, okay, so fine. I heard don't be mediocre at everything you tried. Try to be the best at everything you try to do. We've since revisited the conversation. She was like, that's not exactly what I was saying, but I'm glad that's what you took from it. Go for it. <laughs> and it worked out. It worked for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> Where did the inspiration for your pen name come from <laughs> for your fiction novels? Yeah. So I, as I said, my very first uh, publication was on Mesopotamian astronomy. Well, at the time I was writing my romance novel, I was also writing my treatise on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax exemption. And if people can see your eyes glazing over, they will understand why this next part is true. (laughs) Google had just come into being. And so a friend of mine called and said, put your name in this thing, go to Google and put your name in and up pops this information about me. And I'm like, huh, I do not think that people who read my publication on tax policy are also going to read my romance novel. (laughs) It would be like, you know, no one's going out saying, let me read a romance novel by Alan Greenspan. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you can't publish tax under a pseudonym. So Stacey Abrams was the tax author and the the nonfiction author. And Selena Montgomery became my romance novel. And she comes from Elizabeth Montgomery, who was the actress who played Samantha on Bewitched. And I love that show and I loved her name. And I was watching an A&E biography of Samantha. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was watching an A&E biography of uh, Elizabeth Montgomery and her evil twin, her evil cousin on the show was called Serena. I don't like my R's, but I love my L's. And so Serena became Selena and I became Selena Montgomery. Continuing back on this path of you kind of balancing your interest and your, your love for writing with politics, you know, writing seems in general, so intimate and so vulnerable and so personal, whereas politics seems oftentimes a lot more conservative and private. How do you, as a public figure, kind of allow yourself to be the most vulnerable? And do you think it is perceived outwardly as a strength or as a weakness, specifically as a Black woman? 
like you, I, I'm an introvert by nature. I learned early on that you have to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. And as I often want them not to be right by me, I've had to figure out other ways to navigate this. Yeah. And so part of the challenge is being honest with yourself about who you are, knowing what energizes you, what innervates you, how you move in these spaces, and then not denying who you are, but figuring out what strategies can help you mimic the behavior that other need, others need to see without diminishing who you are. I'm a private person, I, but I write books that tell some of my own stories. I have to calibrate how much of myself I'm going to pour into a story, how transparent I'm going to be about the information I offer. But I also know that I, I make trade-offs. When I decided to enter the public space, I'm asking people to trust me. You can't trust someone you don't know. And so part of my responsibility has been to decide how much of my own story am I going to tell? So, you know, in 2018, when I was running for governor and people noticed that I'm a broke black woman, like I could have hidden that. And the traditional approach is either don't bother running. In fact, I was told not to run because of my debt by some folks, not my, my team, but by others. But my approach was instead to say, okay, this is a part of who I am. It's also part of why I would be good at this job because I understand the pain people are feeling. I understand the difficulties they're navigating. And so I think as Black women in particular, we are both cautioned against being wholly honest about who we are, but it's also the very nature of our existence that makes us so good at leadership. When you've got to claw your way through and up through and out of so many different things, we then have the ability to tell other people how to do it too. And that's what leadership should be. It's not just pontificating about the future. It's saying, here's a plan. One of my favorite scenes from West Wing, the first season, was this uh, moment where Josh reveals that he's under, he has PTSD. And Leo says, you know, there's this guy who falls down a well and he yells up, you know, somebody help me. And a priest walks by and throws down a Bible. It's like, I'll pray for you. Another guy walks down and, you know, throws down a light. But then the third guy jumps down and with down there with him and he looks at him. He's like, John, why are you, why are you down here? He said, well, I've been down here myself and I know the way out. Part of being a black woman and navigating in these spaces, whether it's in writing or in politics or in business is that I've been down there. I know the way out. And even if I don't, if I bring you with me, we together can figure out a better answer because whatever they're doing right now isn't working. Yes. Wow. And also, Stacey, we've seen all the trouble that people get into when they try to keep those vulnerable private moments, like, very private, when yeah. they should have been honest in public from the jump. Yeah. I'll be honest, though. I feel like as a Black one, both Kirby and I are on the network side of the industry, mm-hmm. and there's not many of us. So even showing a little bit of vulnerability, I feel like being the first to break that could mess it up for everyone else that's coming. So to my team, I'm like very stone cold. Like I like to keep it separate. And I don't know if that's a pro or a con yet, but we'll see. I, I will say this, Amira. I, I think the challenge is that people need to know that you are strong, but they also need to know that you care. And sometimes we we gravitate so much towards the strength. We forget that people aren't in our heads. They don't know that we really want to cry. <laughs> And so part of the calibration is, no, you don't break down in tears, but find other ways to communicate that you you care. There's a this uh, theory that was shared with me once. There's high touch, low touch. 
high touch people, you know, they, they're more utilitarian. They're going to do stuff to show you they care. Low touch folks are going to be down there with you. They're going to ask you about your day, how your dog is, what's going on. You've got to figure out where you fit in that and find ways to use whichever one defines you to show you care. My team will tell you I'm not warm and fuzzy, but they will also tell you that if, I hope they would tell you, that if they need <laughs> something, they know they can ask me. I find moments to provide, to show, you know, I like to be funny sometimes. So I'll find moments to do that. And you don't have to do it so often that it creates an informality, but you've got to do it often enough that it creates accessibility. And that's the place where I think, especially as Black women in leadership positions, we get in trouble because we're trying so hard not to seem vulnerable that we force those who work with us to not share their need. And if they can't tell you what they need, then you can't get the best out of them. Yeah. I think what you're talking about too is really important to me kind of as a young black woman navigating this industry is it's just as important to find your village in the profession that you're in as it is like for your familial village, right? So being able to find those people that you can use as touchstones. And I'm looking at Amira because she's a touchstone for me, <laughs> mm-hmm. somebody that you can show those vulnerabilities to, and that is able to allow you to come as your full self and be as you are and help you navigate all of these challenges that life throws at you. I think as an adult, what I've learned is that life doesn't get easier. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the way that you respond to it and and the people that you bring along with you is what's most important. And that's what helps me get me through. So I appreciate you sharing that that piece of your world with us. In your new children's book, Stacey's Extraordinary Words. So um, it's so good. It's so cute. Side note, can I just say, <laughs> the kids of this new generation, I'm a little jealous that they get like, this is their first wind. And it's so inclusive. It's so black. Like, to see a black woman in that at the center of the story, it just touched my heart. I love children's yeah. books and films. So it made me very happy. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, but in your new children's book, Stacey's Extraordinary Words, the young Stacey seems to parallel the path you took in your life, including the importance of pushing forward even when you don't win and achieving things for yourself. Can you talk about the real life moments that mirror the book? So this story is based on a true story, not not quite exactly how it happened. When I was in second grade, I had just I skipped a grade. I talked about this a little bit in the author's note, but I'd skipped a grade. And it was jarring and it was very disconcerting because when you're just starting school, you're just learning your place. And I finally figured out who I liked in my class, who I didn't like, and they pull me out and put me in this new class. And I've got to start it all over again. And as an introvert and as someone who was shy or reserved, I I wasn't afraid of people. I just didn't necessarily want to hang out with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Books were this point of access. And Miss Blakesley, the second grade teacher, she noticed that I loved reading. And so she would let me read during recess. She didn't make me go outside and play with everyone. I had to go outside the, out of the trailer, but I didn't have to play. And that was so important to me because it let me acclimate at my own pace. And it was an extension of my childhood. My mom was a librarian who made sure we were always surrounded by books and they were my friends. And I loved words, not just stories, but the words themselves. And so while I did not have my own extraordinary notebook, I did collect words. I loved knowing them and I loved thinking about them. So this book was really, for me, an opportunity to take a couple of points from my childhood and wrap them in a story that had consequence and meaning without being too fluffy and without 
underselling just how hard it can be to be a six or a seven-year-old or a four-year-old trying to navigate, to use that word again, to navigate in a world that sometimes is mean and Mm -hmm. not forgiving and not always welcoming. Yeah. You know, I actually love that at the end of the book, you also have an index of words that people can (laughs) um, refer to and, and share with their children. I will say though, and I will admit there are some words that you use in the book. That I'm like, I don't even know what this word is. <laughs> I, I would lose the spelling bee and I do not know what the meaning of this word is. So thank you for the index. Absolutely. <laughs> the book was a little traumatic for me too because I lost on the first round of my spelling oh. bee that I like studied forever for. And it was so embarrassing. Like it was so, it stuck with me for years. But are you glad you did it? Yes. Why? Well, now I am. But back then, no. Even though I messed up, I made new friends out of it and I was fine. Like those friends that I made in that class, I'm still friends with. So I guess that's the pro that I I feel that was positive 10 years later. But at that moment, I cried for like weeks. (laughs) My mom could not get me to stop crying. (laughs) I So before I wrote Stacey's Extraordinary Words, I wrote a book called Lead from the Outside. And the very first chapter is called ambition, but the second chapter is called fear. And one thing I I try as a through line in the writing I do, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, children or adult, is that we've got to learn that humiliation is real. Fear is real, but they're not permanent. And there's always something you can excavate from it. Never diminish the legitimacy of it. I, I hate when people say, and in fact, I used to say this, oh, be fearless. No, fearlessness is dumb. There yeah. are things to be afraid of. There are there are enemies and <laughs> there are monsters. <laughs> yeah. My point is befriend your fear, know it, understand it. The same thing is true for humiliation. When we make mistakes, sometimes on a national public stage with the world watching, yeah. <laughs> when things don't work out the way you want it, the moment we stop ourselves from trying again because the fear wins, because the monsters win, that's when we're in trouble. But- Otherwise, we can just befriend it and bring it along with us. Now you can laugh. I mean, I can see a little tear in the corner of your eye, but it's mostly (laughs) laughter. Yeah, it's tears to stop from from laughing hysterically. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) When you talk about fear, one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast is how you have to persevere through fear to get to the other side. Because nine times out of 10, there's always a lesson on the other side, whether it's a good one or a bad one. And I just had this outer body experience because I was thinking back to the time when Amira and I were even fighting to have this podcast and what that looked like and the fear that accompanied it. We knew there was a need for it. There are not a lot of Black podcasts out there, but also specifically for our networks, there weren't a lot of people that looked like the three of us on this call Mm -hmm. represented in a way that we felt was enough. Um, And the fear that came along with bringing an idea to light. And we didn't know the first thing about any of it, about podcasting, about booking, about producing a podcast. And now we're sitting on the other side of the aisle with Miss Stacey Abrams, and you really inspire that kind of perseverance. You know, it's such a thread that we see throughout your life and throughout this book. So I want to ask, why is that something you felt so motivated to include, especially for Black children? At the end of the story, there's a moment with Stacey and, and her mom where her mom says, you know, there's always next year. You get to try again next year. You get to be on the stage next year. For me, it was important that Stacy respond and remember that it's actually there's tomorrow that we keep waiting for these cinematic moments of change, these cinematic 
moments of discovery. And those are fantastic when they happen. They're also traumatizing and deeply disturbing if they don't go the way you want them to. But what I hope I have exemplified in the way I live my life is that the tomorrow is the important piece because in between those cinematic moments, there's work to be done. There's life to be lived. And for kids to understand that you don't have to wait for these big, you know, dramatic moments of meaning, that you create meaning every single day by what you do. When I ran for governor in 18 and did not win, I didn't hide for four years waiting for another chance, waiting for that next year. I believe that tomorrow was my responsibility and the day after that and the day after that, because it's not only how you how you exemplify perseverance, it's how you embody resilience. And success is much more about resilience than anything else. It's the ability to keep trying and keep trying and to note when you're making progress, even if it doesn't feel like it. There's those who will castigate me because I say about the 2018 election that we won. And I always contextualize it, but people don't like that part. But the contextualizing says we won because we made progress. We won because people who didn't think they had a voice showed up and spoke up. We won because we saw change that happened over time. And while I didn't get the prize in 2018, people I admire and respect won their elections in 2020 and in 2021, and we're watching it happen again and again and new people stepping up and doing things. And that's victory. Victory doesn't mean you get it. Victory means we get it. And that's one of the conceptions that sometimes gets lost. And it's why I thought it was so important for Stacey to have friends who were facing this. If this were just about Stacey and the bully, that's one thing. But it's about the fact that it's not just about you. It's about people who look like you, but also people who just need you to look at them. Yes. And that has to be the mission and that has to be the drive. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, Amira, what a blessing for young people to be able to understand Such these a blessing. concepts early on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your second round, which we're very excited for. We are amped. Honestly, this is an honor. It is. Um, really is. What does the second time around look like for you in pushing through? It requires that I remember what we did well the first time. And the most basic and fundamental was that we believed that you had to talk to everyone, that this was not just about cultivating the people who like me. I, I appreciate them, want them, please stay with me. But, <laughs> but that when you run a campaign or when you, when you lead only for the people who already agree with you, you're missing an opportunity for growth, but you're also missing an opportunity for service that my responsibility is to to run a campaign for all of Georgia. Not everyone is going to like me and not all of them are going to vote for me, but they will never be able to say I didn't see them and didn't include them in my vision of what was possible. That's why we use the term One Georgia as our our frame. But the second part is that I, I want to learn from mistakes that I made. There are ways I may not have articulated myself as effectively as I needed to. There are things I've learned about communities that I wasn't familiar with. And every campaign, every day should be a chance for new learning, new understanding, and being better at being yourself, being better at being a candidate. Because if I win, it makes me better at being governor. I would like to say when I win, but I, I, I straddle that line. I'm, I'm Southern enough that superstition gets to me. <laughs> I, yes. <laughs> I, I have both faith and superstition, which is always, you know, it's an awkward marriage to keep in your head. 
stay tuned because when we come back, we talk to Stacey about her 2022 run for Georgia governor and the important role that fear plays in her success. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We spoke about fear throughout this episode. Do you have any fears going to this next run? Fear has a whole room. I mean, yeah. it's, <laughs> I mean, look, there there are so many things out there. There is active voter suppression that has never stopped, only it's taken on a new guise and unfortunately a veneer of respectability that is dangerous to our body politic. It's not just dangerous to my campaign. It's dangerous to who we are as a nation, who we are as a state. I am afraid that people will believe lies told about me more than they'll believe the truth that I I try to embody. I fear that I will not anticipate enough of what people need. But that's, that's a fear that should always, I think, travel with people who are in service and in leadership. You should always be afraid that you're not doing enough, not in a way that is paralytic, but in a way that is catalytic. Because the more I'm afraid, the more I'm going to learn, the more I'm going to do, the more I'm going to reach out. And so I I see fear as galvanizing, not as petrifying. And so, yes, I have fears, but those fears become real and more and more pervasive when I try to ignore them. I'd rather embrace them, understand them, write them down, and then make a plan to, to, to tackle. Yeah. On the opposite side of fear, I think, is kind of motivation. What does motivation this time around look like for you? In the truest sense, there's a sorrow that we have so many people who are in real pain, who do not have the support and the help that could come from such a powerful position. A governor is someone who has the ability not to fix your life, no one can fix your life, but to ease your path, to help you move up, to create that mobility, or to at least create access to that mobility. And unfortunately, we do not have a leader who believes that that's his job. I find poverty to be immoral, and I find the meanness of our current system and our current leadership to be untenable and unforgivable. My motivation is that I can do a better job and, and it's not speculation. I've done a better job. I've done, I've done the work without the platform, without the resources, without the, the title. And while I haven't done the exact job of governor, I've done so many of the pieces that can come together. But more importantly, I've met so many of the people who could be served and who could see their lives improve 
in dramatic fashion if we had good leadership. That's my motivation. That is the belief that we deserve better. And that means you have to have leaders who see you and want better for you. Wow. Beautiful. We've said this a few times, but you are such a role model, not only for us, but so many young people, specifically so many young Black girls that are coming up, that have this book, that have your career, that have your voice to look up to. What does the moniker role model mean to you? I do not assign it to myself. I will say I appreciate when people pay attention and ask me for advice. But my responsibility is to just be the best person I know how to be and the next day to be better. I I have two extraordinary parents who each day, I mean, they're both 72 and they're still each day the best people I know. And my responsibility is to never give them a reason to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have five brothers and sisters who each in their way are amazing And I want to be worthy of their admiration and their respect. And so it's less about externalizing who I am and more about trying to make certain that I'm living the life that I've been privileged to have, that I've been blessed to inhabit, but that I'm also never a disappointment, that there's never a moment where they question whether I've squandered who I am and and who I could be. Mm -hmm. We know and we know what we hope <laughs> happens <laughs> and what's next for Stacy the politician but what's next for Stacy the novelist what else do you have cooking up your sleeve so Stacy the novelist owes a book to her publisher uh, <laughs> next early next year yes <laughs> the sequel to while justice sleeps uh, I have mentioned before and hope to get to it at some point, although I've got this other job I'm running for, so maybe a yeah, little Yeah, no big deal. Blade. A little busy. Yeah, but, <laughs> a little, but I, I, your schedule's very busy. I, I was like, <laughs> novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it seemed very doable when I signed the contract earlier, but no, I'll get it done. I, I'm, I've, I've got it. I, I know the story and the characters are fun. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it finished. But I also, I started a teenage superhero novel years ago that now living, I have a 15-year-old niece that I've spent a lot of time with during the pandemic. And I really want to write this one now because imagine if your superpower was the ability to manipulate other people's emotions, only your 15-year-old who's just learning how to control your own. Yeah. I've had an up close and personal understanding of what that could be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people, when you see the early origin stories and the montages of how they learned to use those powers, just imagine if that were a power you possessed when you were 15 and trying to deny your angst or worse, yeah. when you were reveling in it. So I'm interested wow. in going back to her and finding out what she does to destroy the world. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I see a Marvel contract in your future as well. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully they're listening. It'll happen. I'm putting it out into the world. Your journey has been such an inspiration to us and I know many others. If there's one moment that you want other people to take from your journey, what would it be? Not to be facetious, but Stacy's Extraordinary Words is really about that. It's it's one of many moments, but it was the first one for me that solidified it. It's that failure isn't permanent and it is painful. And, you know, the age of the internet, it never goes away. But that it's also a way to learn and to be more. I didn't spell chocolate right that did not destroy my future. 
And I may not have known the O, but but I was able to get back. And it took me a few tries before I won the spelling bee. And so the other reality is it's going to take a few tries to get the things we want. We're going to be told no, sometimes deservedly, sometimes, you know, wrongly. But it doesn't matter if we remember that our responsibility is just to try again and to never let what could be next year stop us from doing what could be tomorrow. And you know how to spell chocolate now. I do. I have <laughs> never misspelled that word again, ever. Um, this has been such a joy and a treat and an honor. And we know you are extremely busy, even though you hold it together very, very well. Um, and we like to end this podcast the exact same every week with an iteration of a question. My Black is persevering because. There's no other way to be period. That was it. <laughs> the epilogue That's monologue. I know. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Thank this you both. This is so great. This has been delightful. You two are wonderful. Thank yes. you. If this other thing doesn't work out, I might come to you guys and get a job. Oh, come on. Always. Always. But the other okay. thing is going to okay. work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. going to work out. We're rooting for it to work out. Yes. 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 We're in your corner. So thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been wonderful. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amir Lawalling. This episode was also produced by Aisha Jordan and edited by David Tattashore. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>